the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt podcast, bringing to you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Helping make it all possible is the generous partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy and ADF, the Alliance Defending Freedom. Here's another piece I'll trust you enjoy. Pleased to welcome back to the Hugh Hewitt Show now uh, Secretary of Defense Robert Gates, who served in that job under President George W. Bush and under President Obama, and a lifetime of service, including as National Security Advisor and at the CIA. He has got a brand new book out, Exercise of Power, which I'm holding up in my hand, which absorbed my Father's Day weekend. Mr. Secretary, welcome back to the Hugh Hewitt Show. Great to have you on. Thanks, Hugh. It's really a pleasure to be back. Now, you began your career out of William & Mary at the Central Intelligence Agency. I began my career a decade later with Richard Nixon in his exile in San Clemente as a ghostwriter. We were both working on China. The end of this book, Exercise of Power, is all about China. It hasn't turned out how any of us expected, has it, Mr. Secretary? Well, you know, Hugh, I I make the point in the book, uh, in the China chapter, that the first... uh, 20 years of the relationship really was quite geostrategic. There really wasn't a significant economic component to it. Uh, For Nixon and Kissinger, it was all about uh, the relationship with Russia and how do you use China against Russia and better to have a warm relationship with China to to be able to exploit. And and then the same was true with with even Carter. And I was involved at the the end of the Carter administration in implementing the deal between President Carter and Deng Xiaoping to build American intelligence radars in in Western China to spy on uh, Soviet uh, missile tests. So through about 1980 or so, it really was a geostrategic relationship where each saw it in its mutual advantage. Then with the with the advent of uh, Deng Xiaoping's reforms and China's slow but accelerating growth, uh, the economic component of the relationship really began to get underway in the 1980s and culminated uh, in uh, early in the Clinton administration when uh, China, when we helped China get into the World uh, Trade Organization. And then it, the economic relationship and, ec- and China's economy both just exploded. So it really the last 40, half of the 40 years or so of the relationship have been when it's been dominated by, by the economy. And I would just make two additional points. I think, I think particularly during the economic growth phase of this, uh, from let's say in the 80s until uh, the 19, uh, well, until the current time, the belief has been that a richer China would be a freer China. That was a mistaken assumption. And then the second thing that we didn't anticipate was that a richer China would become a more assertive China. So that's kind of, I think, how the relationship evolved and and 
It's only been in the last three or four years that the U.S. has begun to challenge uh, those assumptions that, that proved wrong. Now, Mr. Secretary, uh, for people who are, they can see how heavily annotated the book is. And one line is under underscored, such high hopes. It was, this is, was a bipartisan uh, decision to buy into the China idea. Have both parties come to the recognition in your view? And you are respected on both sides. I think you're the last man in America who actually has the respect of both party elites. Do both parties understand in your view now that, that the CCP is not our friend and they're not going to be our friend for a very long time? I think so, uh, Hugh. I think it's the only, it's probably about the only thing you can point to uh, these days where there's any kind of bipartisan agreement. And, uh, uh, and, and they're going to kind of have, I think that the two presidential candidates are going to have kind of dueling campaigns this fall about who's more, who's tougher on China. And uh, so, yeah, it's one of the few areas of uh, bipartisanship. And you can see it in the fact that there's like 200 different pieces of legislation punishing China in one form or another uh, up on the Hill in both the House and the Senate. Mr. Secretary, an exercise of power, you don't use the term Cold War 2.0. Is it appropriate to say we are in Cold War 2.0? I think so. You, you know, we can dance around it and pretend that it's not uh, not going to be the same. Um, the, I think actually, in some ways, uh, it, it is potentially a little riskier in the sense that over time we negotiated a number of arms control agreements and and other kinds of assurances with the Soviets to make sure we avoided a military conflict first the arms control agreements that limited the number of nuclear weapons that we had. It, it basically codified what both sides wanted to do, but it provided predictability in the arms race. You know, you knew, you knew the other guy couldn't build more than X missiles or Y nuclear weapons. Uh, and we negotiated a lot of uh, uh, agreements to avoid um, incidents um, blowing up into uh, major confrontations. So we negotiated the incidents at sea uh, uh, agreement with the Soviets. We negotiated um, how we would observe each other's re- uh, exercise, military exercises and so on. We really don't have any of those agreements with China at all. So at this point, the, the, the relationship and the confrontations, particularly in the South China Sea, are kind of ungoverned space. And one of my minor achievements when I was secretary was getting a direct phone line put in between the Secretary of Defense and the Minister of Defense in China. And, and all I can say is that I think that uh, if I were to ever use that line, there probably wouldn't be anybody at the other end of the, at the, end of the other end of the phone because the Minister of Defense has relatively no power in China. Uh, Mr. Secretary, when, when we talk about China today, you are very clear the, tra- the transition from Deng Xiaoping to General Secretary Xi has been one of an accumulation of power in the position of the General Secretary. Uh, did you expect that when you were young in your career? Did you expect that when you were sec def under either President Bush or President Obama that the General Secretary would become basically president for life in China? Well, you know, the, the collective leadership principle uh, generally prevailed through Jiang Zemin and uh, Hu Jintao. 
they maintained the collective leadership. Uh, uh, they they observed the term limits. They left after their two five-year terms. Uh, I think that the real sea change toward one-man rule really has just begun with Xi Jinping. And, and the problem with one-man rule is that when you're responsible for everything, you're responsible for everything. And anything goes wrong, there's only one address. And, and that's one of the risks he's undertaking. When, when you have a collective leadership, you can sort of, sort of spread the blame around if something goes wrong. But now it's all him. Do, do you think he may face a Khrushchev moment, by which I mean that moment at which the Politburo of the Soviet Union came to Nikita Khrushchev and said, we are unhappy with the way you are doing things, you're out? Does the general secretary face any kind of risk like that? I think when you have this kind of a, a authoritarian regime, the leader always faces that kind of a risk. Now, he's taken, like most authoritarians, he's taken significant steps to make sure he controls the army, to make sure he controls the security services, and to plant his people so that he will get advance word. I remember um, I joined CIA just a couple of years after uh, Khrushchev was ousted, and we took a lot of heat for not predicting that. My response was, well, Khrushchev had, a, had all the resource, intelligence resources there were in the Soviet Union, and he didn't see it coming. So how can you expect us to have gotten it? So, you know, <laughs> in one of these regimes, you just you just don't know. Uh, so, Mr. Secretary, going back to your legendary budget battles within the Obama administration, they're the stuff of, of Beltway lore. I want to look ahead, and, I, and I, I really don't want to get you involved in a partisan fight. I want to draw on your expertise. Are we spending enough in the right places to equip ourselves for a Cold War 2.0? I think we are. I, th- I think in the military sense, Hugh, we are. Uh, I, I have a feeling we probably could spend it better and more wisely. I felt that way the whole time I was in, in, in office and tried to do some things about that in terms of shifting, shifting money around and, and so on. The problem with the military budget is that I like to describe it, if you, if you were to graph the military budget over a period of years, it would look like the EKG of a fibrillating heart. The, the, the problem is the, the lack of sustainability. They'll have a couple of fat years and then a couple of lean years. And if they could just count on getting, say, 4% or even 3% real growth over inflation, but over a sustained period of time, 10 years or something like that, you could really make a lot of efficiencies in the department and save a lot of money because when you get a lot of money, if you know the next year is going to be lean, then you spend it as fast as you can. And that's not as that's just flat, not efficient. And you could stretch out production schedules and so on. But the other part of, of this competition with China that we're going to have for as long into the future as we can see where we are drastically underfunded is in the non-military instruments of power. It's in it's in our diplomacy. It's in our strategic communications. It's in our development assistance. It's in the way we use cyber uh, politically and and in a variety of our economic tools. We are deeply underfunded, deeply. Uh, we lack any kind of coordination and and it's kind of open field running. And, and I would say one of the issues that I have with the president 
and the administration is they also don't seem to understand the that it's not a great idea to antagonize everybody in the world at the same time. Uh, one of our unique assets in the United States is our allies and friends. Nobody's pushed the Chinese or no, nobody's pushed our allies harder than I did to spend more on defense. But at the end of the day, it's like Churchill said, the only thing worse than not having it, not only thing worse than having allies is not having allies. And none of and, our allies and, are, are remotely as much a pain in the neck as Charles de Gaulle was to Winston Churchill. I mean, it's, well, that's, that's for sure. It's not even close. Not even and, close. And so, and so it's these not, it's in this non-military arena where frankly, we, since the end of the cold war have unilaterally disarmed that the Chinese have invested huge sums of money. Hu Jintao, a few years ago, invested $7 billion to, to improve their strategic communications. And we don't have anything like that. And what? what we do have is disaggregated and there's no strategy for it. So I would say on the military side, we're probably in pretty good shape if the current level of spending or rate of growth in spending can be sustained. On the non-military side, the, the, the Chinese are beating the pants off of us. Wow. I want to go to page uh, 65 to my favorite line in the book, Mr. Secretary. Outside of the White House, um, uh, excuse me, to the outsider, this all sounds like a bunch of bureaucratic mumbo jumbo. You are referring to the interagency process there, the process by which policy is made. And it does sound like bureaucratic mumbo jumbo. It has not been coherent, in my view, since Dr. Rice was running the NSA. Stephen Hadley was pretty coherent. It just has not been coherent. O'Brien is a friend of mine, a very dear friend. I think it's beginning to be coherent again. Do you think we can recapture strategic coherence in the policy coordination between the White House, the Secretary of State, and the Secretary of Defense, and to the extent that the Department of Justice is involved in counterintelligence, DOJ. Is that possible to get back? Hugh, I think only if uh, the president embraces it. Um, the only way the system works is if people know that that's, if people in the different agencies, even at the cabinet level, know that that's what the president, uh, that's the kind of process that the president wants. Uh, you know, I would say uh, even even Condi Rice and, and Steve, had, Condi Rice had a problem uh, because of the uh, rivalry, if you will, between Colin Powell and Don Rumsfeld and between Colin and the White House and, and so on. And uh, you know, to tell you the truth, I think the, the model for when it, when it ran the best was under Bush 41 because he, he had a, an extraordinary process and he had a team like uh, Jim Baker and Brent Scowcroft and uh, uh, Dick Cheney over at State and, he, and there was a, a real cohesive t spirit of teamwork there. Uh, I think that worked pretty well in the uh, last years of the Bush administration when I was there because uh, Condi and I had been friends and Hadley and I had been friends for many, many years. So we worked together pretty seamlessly. And the gotcha. same thing really in some ways for the first couple of years of the Obama administration. But, but if you have, a, a, as I say in the book, most, for most of my careers, my career, uh, the Secretary of State and the Secretary of Defense weren't even on speaking terms. 
And that that makes it pretty tough for the interagency uh, process to work. You know, I, I, I recently wrote for The Post that back in the days when I was a young staffer in the White House, Secretary, then Chief of Staff James Baker, National Security Advisor Clark, and Secretary of Defense Weinberger had the relationship that Gates and Condi and Hadley had. What is it that is so hard to get about that mix? Because that's actually the, 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 the secret sauce. If you can get those three people, the Chief of Staff, the National Security Advisor, the Secretary of State, excuse me, the Secretary of Defense going, with the Secretary of State involved, you've got actually the team in place. Why is that so hard to do? Well, I think, I think a couple of things. First of all, uh, in, in all of those cases, those people had all known each other and worked together for a number of years uh, in earlier administrations. I mean, I first, uh, I first met Brent Scowcroft in the Ford administration, actually in the last days of the Nixon administration when I was on the NSC. So, so we had known each other for, for ages. The second was that these, these people were all experienced. They had uh, considerable experience in government. And in each case, you had a president who was willing and insisted on having a coherent decision-making process. Uh, I remember well, one of my favorite anecdotes when I was chairing the deputies committee, which kind of ran the interagency process under President uh, uh, Bush, first President Bush. Uh, there was a big debate in the Situation Room about what the president wanted, and I just kind of pushed my chair back and I said, "Well, I'll just go ask him." <laughs> and so I walked up to the Oval Office, went in, said, "Here's the problem." He said what he wanted. I went back down. And I said, "Here's what the president wants." And everybody, I mean, there's no rejoinder to that. The me- meeting was able to move on from that moment. But that's the kind of engagement on the part of the president that's needed. And now, and I, I I guess a final thought I'd say is I in government as well as kind of anything in my view, consensus is the enemy. And one of the things that the presidents that I worked for tried to avoid actually was consensus. They wanted disparate points of view because they wanted to be making the decisions. They didn't want uh, solutions coming to them fully baked by the bureaucracy so that they didn't have any choices about what to do. Uh, Mr. Secretary, I'm kind of a connoisseur of memoirs. Uh, I may be the only one who read, and I joked with Secretary Kerry, the only one that read every page of Secretary Kerry's memoir. And we had a great conversation about it. But I don't care if it's Republican or Democrat. I read them because that's how you figure out what happened. What you have said that from your memoir that was the most controversial thing is that uh, Vice President Biden, former Vice President Biden, hadn't been right on any major foreign policy issue in 40 years. Do you worry about a Biden administration and that fundamental inability to grasp great power competition infecting that West Wing? Yeah, I stand by that statement. Uh, I will say, Hugh, it, it related mainly to um, um, things that had happened in the Cold War. Biden voted against every single arms program, I think, that Ronald Reagan put up on the Hill. Um, he voted for the uh, Iraq war, uh, and, and so on. Uh, so I do have those policy differences with him. I will say in the Obama administration, uh, we did have a very deep disagreement on Afghanistan and that was, that was a big deal, but on issues like, uh, in, uh, intervening in Libya and, and dumping Mubarak in Egypt, uh, I was, I, he and I actually were on the same side on those issues. So, 
I, you know, and the other thing I write about in the book that uh, that hasn't gotten much attention is that I also think that uh, the, the vice president had some issues with the military. And I wrote in duty about how yes. he would warn the president that he was being boxed in, that the military was trying to take away his options and so on. And and he'd kind of rail at the generals and uh, and and that bothered me some. So, you know, I there are puts and takes with you know, any presidential candidate, uh, um, he brings a decency and, a and integrity and, and so on to the, to the race. Uh, but, um, but I did have these issues with him. Let me ask you about a, a far more deep question, Mr. Secretary, because it makes you look out 40 years, having spent 40 years doing this. I don't think the bench is very deep in either party. And I believe a lot younger people are a lot making much more significant decisions than was the case when I worked in the Reagan White House. In my late 20s, I was to be seen and not heard. Fred Fielding was my boss, and I, 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 my opinions were not wanted. My research memos were wanted. Nowadays, we have 20-somethings and young 30-somethings making strategic decisions. What do you make of that change, and what does it augur for the future? I remember during the Clinton administration, somebody joking that it used to be that a job in the White House was the culmination of a career, not a first job. <laughs> uh, and that's kind of been true uh, ever since. You, you know, um, one of the regrets that I had when I stepped down, when I retired as Secretary of Defense, and I made a couple of comments about it, you, was that I was the last senior national security advisor, a national security figure, to have worked for presidents of both parties. Uh, and sort of a personalization of the bipartisan approach to national security policy. And now, and now, these younger people who are coming into these more senior jobs have only worked in the in the Republican channel or in the Democratic channel. They, they serve in government when, um, when there's a Democratic president, uh, uh, and, and then they go to a think tank or some such uh, when there's a Republican president, and vice versa on the Republican side. So they actually don't get much experience working with people across the aisle. I mean, when I when I became uh, Secretary of Defense, I'd been I'd, I'd had experience working with both Republicans in Congress, um, uh, probably for thirty years, and and so part of the problem that we have in trying to foster uh, bipartisan policies is that the people doing the staffing and creating the options and so on have grown up in their party. Uh, uh, cylinder uh, silo and <clears throat> and have not had uh, a lot of experience in the real world. Now, maybe in the think tank world, but in the real world, reaching across the island, figuring out how do you get support, the support of the other side for a particular policy. And, you know, there's that. And then, as you suggested at the outset, there's the there's the uh, the lack of experience in many cases. Well, what I was doing so many years ago and what I expect, I expect this book, Exercise of Power, to be under the arm of President Trump and uh, Vice President Biden if they are campaigning strategically. When President Nixon wrote The Real War, that's the book that I worked with him on, Ronald Reagan carried it with him everywhere. 
to send a message that he was aware of the great power competition that was underway and that he wasn't going to be fooled by anybody. I don't know that great power competition is understood very much outside of our professional military cast. Do you, Mr. Secretary? I don't even know if it's taught at the Ph.D. level like you acquired before going into the CIA. It may be a dead letter box when it comes to what people study these days. I think it's I think it's pretty rare to find those kinds of strategic programs uh, in universities. Some have it. My alma mater, William & Mary, does some things along that way. But I, I, I think that the the real um, gap, frankly, is in the lack of understanding that this competition uh, with China and that's really where the book where the book kind of comes together in the, yes. at the end. Yeah, that's the competition with China it will be like the Cold War with the Soviets in the respect that it will take place if we're lucky against the backdrop of huge arms buildups, but not a direct military confrontation. And therefore, the competition will actually be played out in non-military arenas. And it's those arenas where we have so weakened ourselves and where the Chinese have invested dramatically. And that's why I think that doing taking actions such as walking out of the World Health Organization is such a mistake, no matter what its uh, uh, faults. When you when you leave these organizations, the Chinese move right in behind you and take all those positions that you once occupied. So if the world is about how do you shape the international environment to suit your national interests, then those institutions are one of the mechanisms you do to do, you you use to do that. And so if, and you add that to strategic communications. And I make the point in the book, I mean, why have we not been able to penetrate behind the firewalls in China to talk about the corruption of their leaders or in Russia or in Iran? Why have we not been able to use the kind of much more sophisticated technological tools to get behind the Iron Curtains, if you will, in Russia and China and these other countries, uh, <clears throat> not to try and foment revolution, but to provide the information to the people, the specifics about how their leaders are screwing them. Yeah, you know, I, I, I had Secretary Briad on yesterday, Mr. Secretary, talking about the fact that the Chinese are exporting micro reactors, nuclear reactors all over the third world, and we're not in that game. Uh, we invented the technology. We developed the technology. We used to have a monopoly on the technology. Now we're out of the game. That's soft power. It's not DOD power, but we're out of that game. How do you re-engage a country's interest in something like that when the, the, the narrative is that it's dangerous and, you know, Three Mile Island, we're going to burn a hole to the center of the earth sort of stuff. How do you defeat 40 years of popular culture? Well, I think... <laughs> It sort of goes without saying it requires leadership. It requires, you know, Franklin D. Roosevelt said that the primary responsibility of a president is to educate. And I think it takes it takes a president, but it also takes congressional leaders uh, saying that we need these capabilities if we're going to keep the competition with China peaceful. And and we're going to need to rebuild capabilities that were dismantled during the Clinton administration. USIA was dismantled in 1998. USAID was tucked under the State Department um, uh, a year later. 
none of these organizations have received adequate funding and so on. And so it's going to take members of Congress and the president working together to educate the American people that this is really a pretty low cost way to carry on what is, in fact, a global competition that I, I think this is all of the, this, the, the battle between capitalism and communism or between democracy and communism, I think, is over. Communism is dead as a doornail. But authoritarianism has very, very deep roots in human history. And what we're seeing now is a reassertion of authoritarianism 30 years after the fall of uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union. And, and so this battle is about a democracy and, and human rights and political rights versus authoritarians, and they are exemplified by President Xi, to a lesser extent Putin. What makes China dangerous in the non-military arena is that they're smarter and they're, and they're a lot richer than the Russians. And they have created these non-military uh, capabilities. Belt and Road is one example. I, I got it. There's a lot of problems with it and so on. But it's still a trillion dollar commitment and we have nothing comparable to it. Um, the way one they of, created. One of the themes in exercise of power, and I began to, to try and run through my memory. Has anyone ever served as head of the CIA, national security advisor and, and secretary of defense? And the answer is no. Uh, I think the answer is no. And that means you were uniquely uh, understanding in the breadth and depth of espionage directed at the United States. Uh, Attorney General Barr, and by the way, did you work with Attorney General Barr closely under H.W.? Uh, we overlapped for about a year, yeah. What's your estimate of the man? Because I admire him, I esteem him quite a lot. Well, I haven't. I, I, the only time I've seen Bill since the, the end of the first Bush administration was at uh, uh, Bush 41's funeral. Um, and, and I worked with him when I was secretary, when I was uh, director of central intelligence under Bush 41. And we had a very strong relationship. And, uh, he, uh, he said an extraordinary thing on, uh, the Sunday show. I want to play for you. Cut number six. He, he had been talking about Huawei being a backdoor into our, uh, communication system, but then he issued this sort of blanket warning about, uh, CCP, espionage that I'd like the audience to hear. Cut number six, friends. Well, you know what? We're not speaking German today because the American business in the past didn't think that way. They yes. stood with the United States and all the pri privileges and the benefits and the stability and the rule of law and the ability to profit as they do, both as companies and individuals, comes from the strength of this country. So should it be a law that if you are working under a grant, a United States grant at a university, you're not allowed to take money from the Chinese Communist Party? We are clearly cracking down on uh, researchers and others that are sent over here to get involved in our key technological programs. And by the way, this is not just weapon systems. This is agriculture. This is medicine. Uh, this is robotics. Uh, this is 
artificial intelligence and so forth. It's, it's the whole gamut of important technologies going forward. So are they seeking out people like the chairman of the you know, chemistry department at Harvard to, to try to get those people to work with them? Are they seeking people out? The Chinese efforts run the gamut from more traditional espionage of recruiting people to work for them explicitly to cultivating relationships that they're then able to use. Uh, and the people frequently are not completely uh, attuned to the fact that they are being used uh, as uh, as essentially stooges for the Chinese. So now, Mr. Secretary, I had just read page 375 of the Exercise of Power. The Chinese have developed a digital Silk Road component to the broader Belt and Road Initiative, seeking to provide digital infrastructure for countries all over the world you went on to explain this is not because they're generous hearted capitalists. And what Bill Barr said figures into it. We are really in a in an intelligence struggle that dwarfs that which went on between the Soviets and the United States for 45 years. Well, one contrast is that uh, beginning in 1949, uh, we, we had a structure in NATO uh, and that involved non-NATO countries that was focused on denying advanced technologies to the Soviet Union, it's called COCOM. And, and, uh, and we worked very hard for a very long period of for decades to prevent uh, sensitive technologies that might help the Soviets either economically or militarily from getting into the Soviet Union. I would say this reached its high point, uh, actually toward the end of the Carter administration, and then really uh, doubled down in the Reagan administration. And I believe that there's a good case to be made that these restrictions uh, actually retarded the growth of the Soviet Union and, and uh, economically and, and, uh, and slowed the development of their weapon system. So, you know, we really haven't paid any attention to this re- with respect to China or any, at any significant level. And, and only in the last three or four years have people kind of awakened to the reality of the magnitude of technology that they have stolen from our companies that do business in China or do business in the United States or elsewhere. And so the question is, how do you, how do you put limits on, on that technology? And, and I, you know, as a former university president, I'm sympathetic with the freedom of academic uh, research and so on. And you do have to draw some distinctions. Having, having foreign students, Chinese students in this country studying a number of things, and I would say um, medicine, agriculture are things where maybe there are places where we can cooperate and where if, if we were working together on a coronavirus vaccine, we could move faster and so on. But when it comes to the, the new technologies of quantum computing, of uh, artificial intelligence, uh, kinds of things that are useful in weapons, we need to be a lot tougher. And I, I used to joke with, uh, with Condi Rice that uh, back in the first Bush administration that, that we were sending 21-year-olds to Soviet universities to study Pushkin, and they were sending 40-year-olds to MIT to study quantum physics. Um, so they know they know that this is a lucrative opportunity at American universities and labs, and and I think there's a place for uh, cooperation between the university presidents and the FBI and others 
in terms of how you draw some lines here that make sense uh, in terms of cooperation. This actually happened uh, during uh, Bush's administration, Bush 43's administration, where there were about 15 university presidents that would meet regularly with the director of the FBI and with senior intelligence officials. We'd get briefed on what the, what the Chinese and the Russians and the others were doing, and we would advise them on how to try and deal with these problems on university campuses without creating huge demonstrations and riots. So, so two, you've been very generous with your time, Mr. Secretary. Thank you. An exercise of power is kind of de rigueur for people who want to be serious about this. Uh, the world of espionage between the CCP and the United States. We are at a disadvantage because we had Le Carre and we had great novelists who would teach the average American through fiction what the great game meant from 1945 to the fall of the wall in 1989. Uh, even with a- experts like Danny Silva and other terrific writers, not many people understand the CCP. How do we make up that deficit? Because they just don't understand China. It's a different language. We don't have the same kind of capacity. We don't have the... Uh, I don't even think Silicon Valley gets what they're doing. Do you? No. I think... I And I think that there's... You know, the other piece of this has been... By the way, I read all those... Uh, guys that you were talking about, including yep. De Silva and so on. Um, that, but I think, you know, it's just been until, until very recently, the business community has been kind of a safety net underneath the U.S.-Chinese relationship. And the business community was supportive of this relationship and supportive of expanding it as much as possible. And it's only been in the last three or four years or so that they've suddenly realized that the, the Chinese don't play fair. They don't play according to the rule, even the rules they've agreed to, and and that American companies are often disadvantaged. A lot of companies made a lot of money in China and probably still will, but I think that they have a they're kind of naive in terms of what they think the the larger Chinese uh, concerns are, and I think that's why the administration's been so exercised about uh, Huawei and five G communications because. The, the more this becomes the network of choice, if you will, in large parts of the world, it's going to give the Chinese access. This is a hard question, Mr. Secretary. Are, are the companies of Silicon Valley naive or are they indifferent? I mean, if you sold advanced design to the Krupp uh, ironworks in the 30s, you were assisting the Nazi regime. If Google sells... Uh, identification software to the CCP in the coming decade, they are assisting in the suppression of the Uyghurs. Is that true? I mean, do you, do you agree with my comparison? I think that, um, I guess mainly I would say that they are uninformed and, and uh, they are uh, you know, having somebody from the FBI show up on the doorstep of one or another of these tech companies, that person's probably not going to get a very warm reception. Uh, so they, they are they're not well informed about how aggressive the Chinese are uh, in exploiting uh, their discoveries. Uh, and and as we have seen in some law enforcement cases, and they're not much interested in cooperating with the American government. One of the things that was helpful to us in the Cold War uh, with Soviets was uh, American business was totally 
uh, supportive of what we were trying to do, and we had a lot of a lot of help from American business. Now, I got I grant you there weren't exactly very many business opportunities in the Soviet Union, so there was no economic <laughs> there was no economic incentive for them to try and and uh, have a closer relationship with with the Soviet Union. But but I think there is the obviously the profit motive, but but I also think there is a um, a, a level of ignorance about just how aggressive the Chinese are and and to what purposes the Chinese will put what they get. Now, uh, everybody's entitled to their retirement. And I'm looking at your study and I want to retire in that room with that fire. I think that, I think you've got <laughs> this set up the right way. But my question is, did any of the big tech companies come to the only fellow who served as the sec def for both presidents and say, come join our board, we need your knowledge. Do, do, are they aware of what they need on their boards? Well, one one came, but but the condition was that I had to use social media. And I said, <laughs> I said that I would never do that. Well, <laughs> well, I do think that they have an enormous deficit in national security uh, experience and national security perspective, and that they've got to add. In fact, I'm in favor of a statute that would oblige their boardrooms to be open to the NSA or the DIA or the CIA. That's not traditionally been our approach, but I'm beginning to think we have to do that. What's your thought on that, Mr. Secretary? And I have one last question. Well, I think I think that uh, these agencies would, and, and 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 don't get me wrong, I think that a lot of businesses are beginning to take this seriously. And and are asking people to come in and inform them about the foreign threats. And I, you know, during the Cold War with the Soviets, uh, when we discovered the Soviets were targeting a company with high technology, we would go in and inform the company of that, and either put a stop to it or work with the company to to organize a sting against the Soviets. Um, and and I think some of that is going on frankly, with the uh, uh, with the Chinese at this point. So I think I think it's many of the companies aren't quite sure where to turn. Uh, you know, there's a lot of consulting firms out there. I'm in one with with Condi and uh, Steve Hadley and um, that can offer some help. And we do offer some help. Uh, but I think there are a lot of uh, particularly the younger companies, I would say, um, that that don't uh, and, and the smaller companies don't fully grasp the, the dangers. Now, my last question has to do with politics. And, I, and I've stirred away from politics out of respect for your ability to walk and advise both sides. Will it be part of President Trump's legacy, whether he has one term or two, that for whatever reason, the relationship with the People's Republic of China has changed significantly? I think that the um, answer is yes, uh, because I think while the suspicions and the concerns about China were growing, uh, I think that the, the, the full understanding of um, not only uh, the, the national security risk from the Chinese, but, but our economic dependency and, and the uh, unlevel, uneven playing field for our companies have really come to the, have all come together, if you will, in the last three years or so uh, in terms of a different approach to China. And I think that's why you see 
the bipartisan uh, support for a tougher line toward China on the Hill. Well, well, that's why I want everyone to read Exercise of Power. I'm going to give myself a bonus question just because of your experience with so many presidents over so many years. Are you shocked or surprised by what happened to President Trump in the transition and the immediate aftermath? Because it is increasingly, a, I work for two Attorney General, Bill Smith and, and, and Ed Meese. What, what, what happened to him is unprecedented in our history in that it was an attack on the peaceful transition of power by a very small group of people with a lot of authority. Does it shock you, Mr. Secretary, what happened? Well, I, you know, Hugh, I, I follow some things closely and some not so much. And uh, I'm frankly confused a little bit about uh, what happened during uh, 2006. One thing I'm not confused about, there is no doubt in my mind the Russians tried to interfere with our election. Just Agreed. as they interfered, interfered with Brexit and they interfered with the French election and the German election, and it was our election. Um, but in terms of uh, what the FBI and others were doing, frankly, uh, uh, as much as I read, I'm still kind of confused about who did what. And, and frankly, maybe these investigations that are going on will help clarify that. I, I think so. I, I hope we do not find that any of the intelligence community was involved. I would be shocked if that were the case, but I also see some trails that might lead to Langley, and I won't put you on the spot and ask you about that. Uh, Mr. Secretary, congratulations on exercise of power. It could not be more timely. I, I imagine you had the campaign in mind for both sides when you wrote this, that you might help both staffers out. Am I right about that? Well, let's just say I insisted to the publisher that it had to come out before the election. Well, there was a guy named Nixon who did the same thing in 1980 because he wanted both sides to understand the real war as you do. Thank you, Mr. Secretary. Thank you, Hugh. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. Our program is coming today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. It's America's most unique graduate leadership programs offered on Pepperdine's breathtaking campus in Malibu, California. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend to go to Town Hall Review and sign up as well today. This is Michael Medved at michaelmedved.com for Town Hall. Recent surveys show public opinion closely divided over local and federal decisions to remove Confederate memorials. But no one has polled reaction to violent vandals who topple monuments on their own in spurts of wanton destruction. In Portland, Oregon, thugs tore down statues of both Washington and Jefferson, while San Francisco radicals trashed a bust of General Grant, the commander whose Civil War victories meant the end of slavery. Decent people may disagree over proper disposition of various commemorations, but there's no defense for vicious vigilantes who assault public places and property generally without consequences for their destruction. Black Lives Matter, along with leaders of the left, from Biden to Bernie, ought to speak out clearly and unequivocally against such rampant mobs, or else the public will spurn their other aspirations with appropriate indignation. Rule of law and orderly consensus must prevail in coming to terms with America's past and our future. I'm Michael Medved. The Pepperdine School of Public Policy, America's unique graduate program for leaders. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu.